Welcome to Day 2 Cloud, the security service edge, or SSE, is a combination of security services delivered in one package. These services typically include a zero-trust network access, a secure web gateway, and a cloud access security broker. And if you notice the theme there, all three have a big idea of filtering traffic between a client and an app looking for bad things happening and making sure that they don't. Our sponsor today is Cisco Systems. At Cisco Live US in June 2023, Cisco announced an SSE product called Cisco Secure Access. Cisco has a robust set of security products, so the announcement of Cisco Secure Access caused some level of confusion for folks. Is this, is this a new product? Is it, is it a rebranding of a Cisco security product that I'm already using? Do I have the hardware in place to leverage Cisco Secure Access? We'll answer all of those questions today and more. Our guest today is Neil Patel, product manager at Cisco. Neil, welcome to the show. And uh, I think the right way to start this show, Neil, is to set up a little bit more about SSE, at least from the Cisco view. When we talk about SSE as a product category, how does Cisco think about that? Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Let's dive into the fact that when we think about secure access and SSE and what we're doing at Cisco, the first thing is we want to look at it from a platform perspective. You mentioned all of those core capabilities and technologies that are involved. More or less, if you try to achieve that today, you can achieve it with individual point products. Perhaps you go with vendor A for solution one, vendor B for solution two. So as a technology stack, it's available in many different forms. Our view, first and foremost, is there has to be unification of a platform. You have to be able to consume the platform as a single entity. So you have you know, single performance SLAs, single console and dashboard for configuration, and you have everything kind of at your fingertips where you're not constantly fumbling, reducing your you know, operational challenges. But in addition to all just the basic core functionalities, you want to make sure that what you're getting, you're not losing that impact of best of breed, or I can do more with it if I do it in a point product model, right? You want to get the unified platform, but all of the deep technical depth in what the solution offers. And that's how we're approaching it. Unifying the platform, but also offering those deep technical capabilities in those security controls, your web gateway, everything from basic web filtering, TLS decryption to deep IPS packet inspection, all the way down to remote browser isolation, and then network connectivity, not just giving you basic you know, plumbing for, for connecting your users to your applications, different forms, secure remote access, branch level access, all of this stuff in a unified platform, right? So we're looking at it from a unified platform perspective without sacrificing the technical capabilities. We mentioned some big categories here that fall under the umbrella heading of SSE. We talked about Secure Web Gateway, uh, CASB, uh, Zero Trust Network Access. But then to speak to your point, beyond just those three, there's a bunch of other Cisco security services that I can choose to plug into Cisco Secure Access, as I understand it. Is that part of the unified view you're talking about then? Yes, exactly. So the idea is you're not just consuming a few features in one product and going somewhere else to consume others. Yeah. So tying together the security platform for SSE with you know advanced detection response, endpoint security, with remediation and XDR bringing this platform together and what we're referring to um, as a Cisco security cloud being a single platform where you can consume everything Cisco security. Yeah, I think one of the 
potential pitfalls of having multiple different products and vendors involved is that you might have inconsistent application of your policy. Like you have an idea of how you want things to be structured and what you want to filter on, et cetera. But then the actual implementation details could be wildly different across these different platforms. So I like the idea of having that sort of unified control plane and dashboard where you can view things. I want to pick out one of the terms that was in the list of products, and that is zero trust network access. And I don't want to pick on it too much, but it has become, let's say, a bit of a marketing buzzword lately. Some security vendors are liberal in their use of the term and what it could potentially mean. But I think understanding what Cisco is doing with ZTNA is pretty important to understanding what SSE is all about. So can you tell us what does Cisco mean when they're talking about zero trust network access? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point there. Um, you hear zero trust everywhere, right? And the concept, we like to think about it as zero trust being a state of mind or an approach just on its own, right? Zero trust being something that you want to think about when it comes to access, when it comes to security, when it comes to anything related to IT in your business. When we say zero trust network access, we really think about it in two fundamental plugs. The first is the ability to ensure that the way connections are behaving and the way actual underlying network connections are being built are done in a zero trust model. You know, that means that for zero trust based applications or network access, you're not just, you know, plugging in a cable and just opening up access. You're not just building a network bridge and just getting blanket access, right? So under the covers, the underpinnings have to support a zero trust architecture. And then over the covers per se, or the application or policy level, being able to write extremely granular policy, right? So there's the zero trust access and underpinning, and then the zero trust policy that lives on top of it. And those together form that zero trust networking, that ZTNA that we're talking about. So the two pieces that we really build on underpinning that connectivity in a zero trust way, so the way we build connections, and then the way we write and allow you to define policy to achieve the zero trust outcome. It's full-blown zero trust, then you're really going after the NIST-style uh, model and the way you're thinking about that. Actually, I have a question for you later, because uh, I want to do a packet walk that's based around a ZTNA-style transaction. So we, we got to save that, because we got to dive into this more, because I'm, I'm very interested in this, and I was going through your presentation from Cisco Live, Neil. I dug through all the slides for that, so very meaty presentation. Speaking of Cisco Live, Neil, what was the announcement that was actually made at Cisco Live? Can you summarize it for us? Yeah, absolutely. So it was a, a full new product introduction, right? Um, Cisco Secure Access being the headliner there. We did obviously a lot of activities around it. We had a lot of sessions. Um, like you said, I had a session there uh, just talking about the deep technical details on how we achieve it. It was introducing a full SSE stack into the Cisco security portfolio. It's something that I would say isn't necessarily unexpected, but it's something that we were very proud of doing at that time because there was a lot of ways to achieve it. If you think about it from a Cisco product platform perspective, there was a lot of solutions that could be brought together and kind of stitched together an SSE platform. But like we talked about earlier, that approach makes it challenging. And as your point, the policy orchestration, just that in itself is an entity on its own. It's a job, it's a, it's a team, it's an effort. So what we saw is we had two very strong abilities here. We had a very deep technical architecture. We had a very good technology to achieve it. And we had the right people and the right team together to actually bring it together. So we built a whole new architecture, we delivered a whole new product, and we dropped it at Cisco Live. And now it's one of those things where we've got customers coming in, everyone's going through the process, we're 
validating it. We're doing early field trials. We've got customers on board already. You know, it was one of those big accelerators for us where we had everything we needed. We just had to bring it together in the right way. And that's what we did at Cisco Live. So there's a lot of components there, a lot of pieces moving around. And it might occur to me, is this a replacement for existing products or is this sort of an overlay on existing products? For instance, is this replacing what I'm currently using for my VPN? If I'm using the AnyConnect client today, is this a wholesale replacement for this or is this more of a control plane plugin? The way we're thinking about it is it's more or less an evolution. Uh, versus a replacement, right? So there's a lot of capabilities, like I mentioned, in the SSE stack or the SSE product portfolio place, where you currently may be doing remote access in a way that is AnyConnect VPN. You currently might be doing remote access with another VPN mechanism. Um, what we're doing is, the first and foremost thing is we're alleviating the operational expense of kind of remote connectivity. VPN being one of those things where it's you have a bunch of head ends deployed all over the world and you're maintaining them and you got to make sure things don't go down or you got optimization between sites and all that. The first piece is evolving that to be an as a service model in SSE. So that's just the first piece. It is a viable replacement, just plug and play for a VPN if the desire was to move up to an as a service model. But then it evolves on that further because VPN as a technology, it's really just core a tunnel, right? A site-to-site connection. What we use that connection for and how we build that connection is what makes it unique. And so we're evolving the remote access piece from VPN to the zero trust. And I think we're going to get into that a little bit as we dig into the architecture and the packet walk. But what I would say is... If you're looking at the current Cisco security stack and you're looking at secure services and then you're looking at secure access and you're like, wait, this does some of it, you know, secure access does some of it. It's an evolution, right? So the idea is you can consume secure access to get a unified platform for those capabilities. That's not to say if all I required was something that handled, you know, um, single sign-on, MFA and things like that, a point solution doesn't solve the problem. But what Secure Access will do is it'll evolve that to incorporate additional capabilities. So it comes down to the way you want to consume it. But again, it's an evolution of existing capabilities into a unified platform. You're talking about all of this to be delivered as a service. That is, I'm going to consume this from the cloud. A lot of security engineers, they're thinking about, I have to install a box that does a magic thing and so on. It sounds like I don't have to install a box. I can consume as a service. So with that in mind, walk me through the major use cases for Cisco Secure Access. Starting all the way at the top, it's two major use cases, uh, secure remote access and secure internet access. Um, we'll start with the former, secure remote access, right? Prior to the pandemic and you know everyone starting to work from home, there was a model more or less, most companies had a hybrid model, though it was leaned more towards in the office, where we had a lot of people in the office coming in, getting access to what they needed. And then we maintained a few data centers or a few spots with firewalls that did remote access. They did a VPN termination, right? So if people were roaming or somebody was offsite, they had access in. The pandemic kind of shifted that model the other way, where the vast majority moved to remote and onsite became next to nothing. That shift wasn't one of, you know, if we think about like technology shifts in the industry, it wasn't one of those slow, you know, wavering shifts where now we're finally moving up to the cloud or we're finally getting out of the data center. It was a two week shift and everybody just moved. Right. And so that made it extremely challenging for enterprises and businesses to say, okay, now everybody's going to be using this small light infrastructure that we set up for a couple remote users. And that is what 
as a service was designed for, right? That is what software as a service was designed for, to let you do that horizontal scale quickly. So that's the kind of problem statement that we're solving for, right? Being able to really quickly activate remote access users. Activation is one thing, securing their access and creating policy and bridging networks is the other piece of it. And that's what the platform does. Now, the value of having it as a service, I don't have to coalesce policy across 13 different VPN concentrators or two different platforms because I made an acquisition last year, or you know, some of my execs have a different edge box and I need to make sure the policy there is correct as well, right? The secure remote access use case is really just getting your users to the resources they need to without really having to think too hard. Just bridge them into a, as a service and then we hear the brokerage. The other use case is internet access, secure internet access. And then also leans on a lot of those topics we talked about before, the secure web gateway, the TLS decryption, the CASB, DLP, remote browser isolation. Not only do we want to secure users when they're getting access to private assets, but we need to ensure that, you know, since they are all over the world, I don't have all this network control over what's going on on their home networks or on Starbucks or wherever they are. So whenever they're going out to the internet, having a clean understanding, a view of what they're doing and having control over it. I like to think about the use case overall as, are you a business that has users that need access to things to do their job? In that scenario, you need something that sits in the middle that's going to secure it and give you visibility and control. And that's what secure access is, is accomplishing, right? Two big use case, remote and internet access. Now we're at the point where we, I want to put some some flesh on the bones. We've kind of described this conceptually. We know what's going on from a, a big picture perspective. We know we're consuming this as a as a service. You just uh, alluded to the middle, in fact. Yeah. So walk us through the Cisco Secure Access architecture. I've, I've been doing some digging, and I know that there's a client component. There's a lot of Cisco magic happening in the middle that you guys are delivering via the cloud. And then there are the applications on the back end that folks are trying to get access to, whether they're private or publicly hosted. So walk us through in more detail. Neil. The easiest way to think about this is there's really three big pieces. There is the who, which is your users, employees, the, the people and the folks on the devices that need access to assets. There is the what on the other side of it, which is what they're accessing. Is it the internet? Is it box.com? Is it a private resource that you've hosted internally? And then there is the how, the middle, right? The secure access. We bridge the connections together. So approaching the, the first piece, the who, how do we get our users into secure access? How do we get them to connect to that secure fabric so they can get their inspection and then get on their way to what they need to? Um, there's two fundamental models. The first is a client-based architecture. So we've designed a unified client for those folks that are familiar with Cisco AnyConnect. It's going to look very familiar because what we've done is the Cisco secure client, uh, think about it like a, a big box. And then inside that box, there is Cisco AnyConnect VPN, there is Cisco Zero Trust Access, and there is Cisco Remote uh, Roaming Web Module. So these modules are part of the same software. So for users, there's going to be a client-based model, and that client-based model is accessible wherever that user might be. And it's going to, if they had AnyConnect before, they'd be familiar with this client, kind of the, the look and feel and the sign-in process and all that. It's going to feel pretty similar to the user. Yes. It's, it's great that you bring that up, and I don't want to derail too far, but just as you think about how I describe this, the biggest thing that we focused on, yes, admin experience is important, technology and capability is important, but no matter how good the technology, if the user interface from an end user perspective is, is not good, 
it's going to cause more problems than it's worth, right? If my users are constantly calling me to say, not connected, doesn't work, I can't get access to this, I'm never going to get over the, is it set up yet or is it operational yet point, right? So yes, a very familiar client, the experience is very familiar and we've tried to make that as transparent as possible. The other connection model is devices on a branch, right? There's a lot of situations where I have devices that cannot have a client installed on them. They're IoT, they're um, stationary, or they're devices that I just don't have software control over. But I still need to ensure they have secure access. Like they could be devices that are calling out to the internet, but I don't need them going to, you know, any which domain being a remote node in like a botnet or something, right? I need to make sure they're only going to the precise resources they need to. And so that's the branch or the, the network based attach where I can actually bridge a network into secure access through standard networking, right? So bridging with Cisco SD-WAN or, you know, third-party IPsec tunneling. So something that's widely supported across different hardware platforms, be it Cisco, be it not Cisco, be it just some strong Swan Linux device, whatever, whatever you want to call it, right? So two models from a device and user perspective to bridge in. And then once we get the traffic, that's when we can start doing the magic, right? So that magic involves the policy creation. The magic involves identifying the traffic, defining the uh, the posture policy, like is the endpoint trusted? Does it have the right search? Does it have the right virus signatures? Conceptually, the, the magic that we're talking about in the middle that Cisco is providing, you folks are running a bunch of the services that make up the SSE offering there in the cloud. Once the traffic gets to you, you begin doing the processing in accordance with the policy that I built. So there's a lot of filtering going on. You've got a stack for that and there's authentication and, and there's a stack for that and so on and so on. Yeah, exactly. So that's the the value of the as a service model, right? Think about doing all of that processing overhead on a box or on your site. Now you have all these considerations of sizing, um, how many users are potentially going to be connecting. You can scale all those processes. And this is, I mean, this is stuff that we all already know, right? Going to the cloud or going to as a service means your scaling challenges are more or less resolved. Well, they're more or less your problem, not my problem anymore. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. It's, it's Cisco's problem now, right? It's not your problem anymore. <laughs> Okay, so you, you do all the processing in the middle for whatever services I'm consuming within uh, the Cisco Secure Access. And then there's also something you, you mentioned here, but there's the connectivity to the back end. So I could have a, an application I'm still hosting on-premises. I'd need a tunnel or something that gets me between on-premises and Cisco Secure and then some kind of routing policy or something that's going to pump traffic through that tunnel. Yeah, that's exactly. So this the last piece is that backhaul connectivity, right? Um, we have actually two models to get there. I'm going to keep the more interesting one for a moment so that you, you stay hooked. The first is exactly, as you mentioned, the networking method, right? So just as we can connect users with an IPsec tunnel, we can backhaul connectivity with a similar IPsec tunnel. Um, we can also backhaul with SD-WAN infrastructure, right? And the way that really works is you have you can share routes. So you can essentially build a tunnel and share um, a specific set of IPs or a specific network range. And you can say, hey, secure access, this is what is available behind me. And so when we broker that connection and it's for one of these assets behind you know, a specific network tunnel, we know which way to send it. We've designed these tunnels to be redundant. There's clustering. You can you know, do ECMP between them. So you have a lot of options in how you deploy that and the flexibility. The more interesting and I'd argue cooler technology is the application connector methodology. This is a little bit different because what it's actually doing, 
I think the best way to describe it for, for a greater audience is really think about it as a backwards VPN tunnel. So what it's actually doing is it's a piece of software. It's a VM that lives in-house. So as close to your application as you desire. And it builds an outbound DTLS tunnel into secure access. So from a networking standpoint and a security standpoint, this device is inside out, just like a regular internet connection, right? Um, so there's no consideration of, do I have to punch holes? Do I have to allow return traffic in a specific way? No routing considerations. It essentially just builds a tunnel out and presents itself to secure access to say, hey, I'm here ready to accept traffic for private resources. As long as that application connector has network connectivity to the internet, and to the network that you're trying to expose or the IPs or resources that you're trying to expose, that's all you have to consider. You remove the challenges of overlapping IP networks. There's a lot of scenarios, right? When you think about it, where I have a bunch of branches or locations where I may have just cloned the IP space to make things simple, or I may have cloned the IP space to keep things consistent. You know, every branch looks exactly the same. It's just a different geolocation. Or I may have acquired a business and they have the same IP addressing scheme. So this, this alleviates all of that, but also it alleviates the, the routing complexities of making sure traffic's going down a specific tunnel and make sure it's allowed to come back down that specific tunnel. A lot of cool things that you can do there, but the idea is it's an inside-out tunnel, making it a lot easier to deploy. It does reduce some complexities, but it adds one in that it feels like I'm having to, from the core of my network, pump certain traffic through that DTLS tunnel that's been instantiated because it's it's sort of an it's it's like exception routing or policy based routing. Yeah, that's fair, right? So it's another it's another point of um network flow. The way we've designed it is essentially it sits there and waits. So the the connection traffic that you should really only ever be seeing is coming from secure access from your secured users going through that security policy, going through all of that inspection only when that is cleared, meaning we've validated the traffic, it's clean, et cetera, et cetera. Can it come down that reverse tunnel? So absolutely, it's a, it's a point to manage and control, but it offers a degree of flexibility and ease of deployment when maybe an IPsec tunnel or manipulating routing is not necessarily the best idea or doable. Right. And I would assume that this virtual machine doesn't have to be a single virtual machine. Correct. You, you can deploy multiple scale horizontally if you need additional bandwidth or processing for the amount of traffic that you're ingesting to your on-premises application. Exactly, Did and, and we've actually, in the deployment process, when you go through that experience in the, in the UX, you get to choose, you know, what is my desired bandwidth? And it'll give you a recommendation on what you need or how many you need. Um, and we handle load balancing cloud side. So you don't have to worry about putting another, you know, load balancer in front of it, getting a VIP and then exposing it. None of that. It's just you connect them all up and then we logically group them and we can organize load across them based on usage. Okay. That's pretty cool. So we talked a little bit about the processing, the munging that the middle point is doing, the magic that gets sprinkled on the traffic that's flowing through. How do I go about configuring and applying policy? To, to make that magic do what I want. What, what's the interface look like? It feels like it might be kind of complicated, right? Some policy languages are really difficult to deal with. So I'm curious how you're making it a little easier. Uh, you centralized it. So how are we making it easy to consume and configure? Yeah, 
I don't think you're the only one that thought that when we were going down this exercise and we investigated releasing this, that was probably the biggest piece that was at the forefront of our engineering and development process, right? We're adding all these amazing capabilities, but they're absolutely useless if you're just giving me a giant mess of policy where something is in location A, something's in a second dashboard. So we actually did something I would argue is unique or new from a, from a Cisco standpoint, even in general, is we net new designed policy and, and experience for the product. Um, something that if you were to go into it and let's say you were the most loyal Cisco person in the entire world, you wouldn't recognize it because it's not something that we've pulled from somewhere else. It's not a merging of other platforms. It's net new. And there's a couple reasons for that. One, first and foremost, exactly what you said. It can get complicated very fast. So the exercise to actually make that consumable is a significant one. And we did a few things. The first thing from a, from a language and a design perspective is we followed a design principle that if, if anybody is familiar with Meraki, a UX design principle we call magnetic. And that is really put together with the viewpoint of everything that is done in the dashboard should be intentional. Meaning I should be focusing a view or a configuration screen thinking about what the administrator's intent is versus asking them to define their intent or just giving them a free form policy source destination action. So from a design perspective, that's the, the ethos we followed. And what we did to you know bring the policy together and get all of this unified is we defined and created what we're calling the unified policy model. And the policy is defined in that intent base where all you're thinking about as an administrator when you define the policy is who and where, number one. So you're not saying, you know, ports, protocols, object groups, none of that stuff. You're referencing source and destination as users, groups, entities, devices, networks, and you're defining destinations as discrete applications, private resources, things that are easy to understand. And then at every line, you're given and afforded the opportunity to say, for this kind of access, what kind of security do you want? So deep packet inspection. And what kind of posture or endpoint verification would you like? So bringing that together in a, in a simple to consume manner is exactly what we did with the dashboard. So it's not I'm sitting there needing to know IP addresses or even groups and getting super granular. It's more like you've classified things and given me a, a, just a somewhat higher level context. It's not way zoomed out, but it is somewhat higher level. So it's easier for me to write that policy with a, with a broader perspective in mind. Yeah, that's that's exactly the way to think about it, right? That's perfect. And not only did we do that for private access, but we did it for internet access as well, right? Because if you're thinking fundamentally, SSEs, like those two use cases we talked about all the way at the beginning, remote access and internet access, both of those require a policy. And they're two fundamentally different things. I'm accessing two fundamentally different locations. Um, so we've, we've done that same process for the internet access policy, and we've brought it together in a single view. The first thing you thought of single view is like, oh, oh hold on, I'm going to have like a ton of different rules and in the same place. And <laughs> there's a very important reason for that. So number one is obviously unification. So you're going to one place to look at it. But two, it lets you very, very powerfully filter across the data. So what I mean by that is when you're looking at what kind of user or what kind of access does Ethan have or what kind of access does Ned have, you're not just looking at what kind of private application access they have. You're looking at what kind of access, period. 
So then you can actually understand the scope of access for an end user more precisely, more quickly than jumping back and forth between product dashboards or policy dashboards. And then like taking mental notes or just, you know, scribbling something down on a sticky note and then comparing it on the screen to the next window or side by siding, whatever, whatever process or workflow you may want to want to approach for that. That was the idea, right? Giving you a single view and then a couple more, you know, quality of life things that we're, we're putting into the platform is, you know, basics of policy validation and testing where you can just give me a, a situation. Ethan's trying to get to the, you know, google.com. And then we'll spit out the processing flow. Like, hey, this is what's going to happen when Ethan tries to do that. So then you can very easily, even if you're like, ah, I can't make sense of what policy is here. Just tell me what you're trying to do, right? I'm trying to see what <laughs> access Ethan has or Ned has. And we'll tell you the process that it's going through. You'll walk me right through, yeah, the, the, the different uh, the parts of the stack where it's going to hit. Oh, it's going to be denied because of this component in the policy right here. Or it's going to be allowed. Look, he went through all these checks and these are the things that allowed it. There was a point in time where I was managing web proxies for a small company. And probably the most painful thing was when someone would come to me and ask me either, why can't I get to this site or application? Or why can this other person, when they're not supposed to, be able to get to this site or application? And digging through the logs to try to figure it out was like the most painful thing ever. So if you're saying you've got an engine that just checks it for me, I love that already. That That's pretty awesome. I mean, we do have the option that if you desired, you wanted to go through logs, 100%. Feel free. You can go through the logs and dig around. But we obviously understand that it's not the ideal path. <laughs> I mean, it's what I like to do on a, on a nice Friday night, dig through some logs, really get my teeth into them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Neil, talk to me about user experience. Um, how do I know as an admin that it's not going to be slow for them to route all this traffic through the Cisco magic cloud and then be have that traffic be subject to all these inspections and checks and then get routed down across a tunnel and, you know, and all this stuff? Digital experience monitoring from an end user and application perspective is is another like super important pillar, right? If you think about what we're asking you to do is we're saying, give us everything and just it'll work, right? I like to think that the reason digital experience monitoring is a thing is because uh, engineers don't like to give away their Legos or their toys. They're like, oh, but I'm giving it to you. How do I know it's doing what it needs to do? Or someone's going to give me an issue. How do I make sure that it, I can, you know? So what we're doing from that digital experience perspective is a couple things, right? First and foremost, we're actually giving the end user information for themselves. This is completely independent of you as an administrator or a platform manager. If the end user is having issues and it's localized to the endpoint, we'll actually prompt them and pass them through a little bit of a process. For example, we all understand that 5 gigahertz doesn't attenuate as well as 2.4. So if someone goes far away and they're connected to 5, their signal might get a little weak, right? So they're like, oh, my box.com is not loading or I can't get to my application. Most of the time for the non-tech initiated, they're going to just open a ticket and just complain to the closest IT person that something's not working. That's a lot of cycles that it burns from that person's time as well as the IT admin side. What the experience monitor will do is it'll actually pinpoint, hey, you've got a lot of latency. It'll look at it has a view and a stake of the endpoint. It can say, hey, your Wi-Fi signal is pretty weak. But it doesn't just tell you that. It says, hey, here are some options to resolve it. So, hey, go connect to 2.4 or walk closer and sit next to your router instead of being, you know, in the balcony trying to, you know, catch some sun rays in the afternoon. Um, it gives you a little bit of direction. Um, and that's really from an end user perspective to help them kind of self-diagnose and self-solve. So you're not 
flooded by, oh, the internet's not working. And, you know, we all know that dichotomy of like when you introduce a new product, it doesn't matter if the problem is not related. It's still that new product issue. Like you put something in there and it's like, it doesn't even touch it, but oh, that product's having a problem. So it helps solve from that. But from an admin perspective, how can I see end user to cloud, cloud to app? That's what we're introducing with the kind of admin experience monitoring or digital experience from an admin viewpoint. So one, you can see all your endpoints. So, you know, all your users all over the world, what kind of overall experience they're having, latency, round trip times to their favorite apps or the most used apps to your private apps. But we can also monitor at the points, right? So if users are having issues getting to your private application, let's say it's a SAP database or something like that. As an administrator, I can see the path from them to secure access to Cisco. So I can eliminate or check that off as a pass. And then I can see the path from secure access to that application. And there's obviously some work to be done there from an admin perspective, ensuring that you have the network connected, the app connectors are deployed, things like that. But once we get that monitor, we can stitch that view together for you. So at the end of the day, from an admin perspective, you can kind of keep tabs on everything. And then you can pipe that into other workflows if you desire to do so, right? The moment something passes the threshold, maybe we want to trigger a ticket automatically. So the first layer one team looks at it, things like that. Let's build on that with some, let's see, I don't know how much detail you can give, but I'm kind of curious about some of the guts of the Cisco cloud itself. Can you tell us a little bit about where the Cisco pops live? Can you tell us within a pop how you scale if things are getting busy and then how those pops are resistant to uh, denial of service attacks? Like I said, we architected this kind of from the ground up. So we've done a couple things. The first is we already have a, a set of Cisco data centers that offer cloud security services. These are 40 to 60 around the world. They kind of sustain all of our secure web traffic today. So we have that infrastructure. But when we architected this, we did a few things. We thought through it. And at the end of the day, the race for the most number of data centers has been won and lost. It's become, it's become a thing like, you know, how many data centers do you have? How many pops do you have? Some people may have 100, some people have 80, some people have 1,000. What we did is we architected the platform to be cloud native. So not only can it run our private data centers, but it can burst or pop to, let's say, a public cloud provider if we need to spin up a specific instance in a geolog location or a specific remote site for a customer where they're like, I only have availability here. I need to be in region. It gives us tremendous flexibility to expose the service in a much greater way. And so with the, the conjunction of how we have our private data center infrastructure and the public cloud data centers, um, we can obviously interconnect between them for optimized routing and backbone connectivity. But from a resiliency perspective, right, we have our DDoS mitigation platforms in front of our existing data centers. And then we can rely on some homegrown stuff as well as, you know, cloud vendor DDoS mitigation platforms. Since if we do live in a public cloud, there's going to be some stuff in front of that to begin with from an infrastructure perspective before it gets to us. And then we have our own kind of technology or management stack for traffic flow. For scaling in public cloud, it's relatively easy to scale horizontally. In our, our main data centers, it's obviously fixed hardware, a couple stacks, a couple racks. And so that will scale to support the number of regions. And then, like I said, you know, we can physically add to that um, or we can enable or um, activate locations in public clouds or you know, down the line, the other scenario that's possible is, hey, you as a large enterprise, you already have your own kind of more or less backhaul and WAN and super interconnected network. 
how about you deploy the stack over in your data center? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's an SSE pop, right? It's Cisco Secure Access pop, but it's your infrastructure. So now you have control over the traffic inspection path. You have control over where it's going and how it's routed to it. And so that's a model that we're looking to move in. This is all possible because the architecture, right? It's cloud native in terms of using containerized services, scaling horizontally. So it can move between platforms with a bit of architecture and a bit of engineering work, but it's designed to do that. And the last question was just denial of service. Is there special magic to be resistant to that sort of attack? So for denial of service, um, we obviously have our own kind of in-house DDoS stuff that we kind of have built and put in front of it. Um, the super technical nuanced details, the, at the end of the day, the idea is if we are protecting your private resources, we're absorbing the risk, risk of DDoS. So from an SLA perspective, from, a, from an end user perspective, it's covered under the agreement of, hey, I'm going to be using secure access to protect my private resources. If we do the private model or public cloud model, the private instance, um, it would more or less be, since in your network, we'd have to ensure that you have the right controls in place or there is infrastructure from your perspective to protect from the DDoS. Okay, Neil, at the top of the show, we talked about a packet walk. And, uh, yeah. and I, thought, I thought a good way to help people kind of bring all of this architecture together we've been talking about would be a packet walk in the ZTNA context specifically, since that's where some of the new shiny magic is really going on there. So let's paint a scenario where I'm a client. I am going through the ZTNA uh, authorization strategy. I am requesting an app that is wherever. It doesn't really matter where the app is so much, um, but I'm pushing this through Cisco Secure Access. Uh, walk us through what happens. The first thing is the end user device, right? So user is requesting an application. Let's start with the first request that comes out of that device. Now, this is a part of this transparent client architecture that we've designed, right? This is going to leverage what we're calling the zero trust access module on the endpoint. And it does a few unique things. The first, I have to kind of like step up a little bit to explain it, but the way it builds connections, when you enroll a device in Cisco zero trust access, you think about it as the ability to connect, not a connection, right? And the reason that's important to remember is because when you think about connecting a VPN or connecting a device to a VPN, you're connecting a VPN and you're opening a bridge, right? Now I'm a part of your network. And that, that bridge doesn't disappear until I disconnect from the VPN. The zero trust access model is I enroll the device, giving it the ability to build a bridge. At rest, there is no bridge. Hmm. So this is all built on a quick tunneling architecture with a mask proxy in the cloud. Think of it like a relay, right? So when I, as a user, let's say I'm accessing a web application that's private, the scenario that we brought up, right? I'm going to make an HTTP connect. The moment that connect happens, I'm going to instantiate right at that time, a quick tunnel to secure access to that mass proxy. And I'm going to start passing traffic through it. Now I pass the traffic, I get to the mass proxy, and that traffic is going to come with a few pieces of information. It's going to come with the user that requested it because the client is enrolled. It's going to come with the posture of the device. What is the, the disk encryption status? Does the device have a password? Uh, does it have antivirus A, B, C, D, or E, or all of them? Um, it's going to have all these details inclusive with that request. That request will hit the proxy and Cisco Secure Access, and it will then be passed into the policy engine. So the first thing we're going to do is say, okay, who is this? And where are they trying to go? So we'll, we'll get that mapping first. And then 
we'll start evaluating the policy set, right? So we'll see, oh, this user matches policy A. Their destination is also in policy A. Let's evaluate this. And then that policy is going to say, hey, you are allowed access. However, you must come with Cisco Secure Endpoint installed, and you must come with disk encryption enabled. Do you pass those checks? Yes, I do. Next, you must also pass IPS inspection. So you are accessing a resource, and I need to inspect your traffic to ensure that you know, even though you are authorized, you're not sending garbage down the pipe. You're not sending malicious payloads. And so I inspect that. Once that happens, I can then stitch the connection through to the private asset on the other side. So this will go down a application connector or an IPsec tunnel. If it goes down the application connector, it's just going down to the bridge, the outbound tunnel that was already made, and then it'll be connected into the end resource. So the, the mask proxy is doing that at that point, is reaching across the backend uh, tunnel? To simplify it, yes. Um, there is a few other functional blocks. There's what we call a, a connector gateway that it passes the traffic to, which handles the distribution to the actual app connector if there's multiple load balancing, all that stuff. But but yes, if we think about it as three big blocks, it's the it's that mass proxy in the middle that's terminating and reestablishing and then brokering the connection between the two. The important piece that I want to run back to is this was on the first HTTP connect, right? Yes. Let's say the application makes another HTTP connect. That's going to go through a completely independent second quick tunnel through the max proxy and through that entire evaluation. The reason that's important is because every single unique connection that comes out of that host to private assets will have its own secured tunnel. It'll have its own secured evaluation. So again, unlike traditional VPN, unlike networking you know, bridges, I'm not just opening a door and letting it ride. You know, policies being evaluated as things come across. I am opening it for that connection. Once that connection disappears, I'm closing it. And then I'm opening a new one the next time a connection is built. Very, very unique to how ZTNA, how we think about ZTNA and that connectivity method. That's the key. This is about zero trust. That's why this is behaving in, the, in this way. If you have a VPN with a, the bridge that's open and all of a sudden you can just pump traffic through it, that's not zero trust. That's not what it's intended by, by NIST when that, that architecture came out. Zero trust network access, a component of zero trust as a larger concept, means that we're doing this continual checking as we talk to that device on the back end. New posture uh, assessment is being done all the time, et cetera. If you don't do that, then you, you don't have zero trust. You're pretending. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> the one other point that I wanted to bring up in that context, right? Um, this workflow that we talked about, um, there's one important thing to remember is the way our, our client is architecting, the way we've designed this like packet path, the end user theoretically has no knowledge of the true IP destination. And what I mean by that is if I'm going to a web app that is, let's say, packetpushers.com, right? It's some private asset in the, in the data center. As an end user and as a device, I'm just typing that URL or I'm typing that domain into an application. When I press enter, the platform, the client is capturing that as, hey, this is supposed to be ZTNA, and it is sending it to our zero trust proxy or our secure access cloud, right? So at that point, I don't know. I still don't know what that resolves to. I don't know what the actual resolution of that resource is, right? I get into the cloud and then I go through the policy checks. I do everything I need to do. And then the proxy sends it along to the app connector. I still don't know what the actual IP of that resource is. I just know that that application lives behind this specific app connector. So what that means is 
all the way up until your infrastructure, I or the end user have no understanding or knowledge of the true IP of that asset or the actual destination. Once I get into your infrastructure, the app connector that is actually connecting to the end resource can then make the DNS query in the location and be like, okay, this is what it is. Let me send you there and let's stitch the connection through. So there's like, you know, there's the, the concepts of CG NAT and all this like, you know, mapping one-to-one in the, in the middle. But the idea is if an end user device was compromised or if I was to sniff the end user devices, you know, network stack, I would just see a bunch of requests going to secure access. Now, for those of you listening and you're hearing us talk about quick tunnels and mask proxy, I'll just give you a quick note here. Quick QIC, it's a transport protocol. You've probably heard of it if you've been keeping up with what's been going on in the HTTP world, the transport world. Mask proxying, M-A-S-Q-U-E is the acronym there. There's been some recent work in the IETF. It is uh, well along the standard track. There are a couple of RFCs about it and a, and a working group that has been actively working on this, but it's been fairly recent work. So if you haven't heard of that at all, it's a pretty easy read. Uh, just do a quick search, look for the IETF's work on it, and you can educate yourself pretty quickly on what mass proxying over quick looks like. Neil, anything else on the packet walk we should be talking about? I think that's good from like an end-to-end experience. What I want to just call out um, is we talked about a very, like the, the ZTNA use case. There is also, you know, this, we didn't really talk too much about it, but in practice and in reality, that workflow or that packet path it requires a, a fundamental shift in how you grant access to resources, right? Traditionally, we've all been used to the VPN method of access where I just open up an IP tunnel and yeah, I have IP access. So the way we've architected the client and the platform and the policy and all of this without you know spending another hour on my soapbox talking about how great the, the client architecture is, we've made it actually very easy to move from VPN to zero trust for resources that can handle it, right? So currently you have a VPN architecture, keep using it. Make your transition through secure access. So you can enable everything from secure access. You can even do VPN connectivity with zero trust policy. So you don't even give up too much in the, in the form of securing your assets when you connect with VPN and do the zero trust policy. It's obviously not true. Like we said, it's not the true connection methodologies that we want, but it gives you a stepping stone, right? Nobody's going to come in and say, tomorrow, I'm zero trust. It's not going to happen. There's Unless uh, you know, I'm building something from the ground up and able to architect everything from users to apps all the way in that model, I have to have a migration path. I have to have a movement path. Do you have documentation, maybe reference architecture, so on, something like that to help me plan from where I am to where I want to go with Cisco Secure Access? Yes, absolutely. So the fundamental one that I just talked about from the RAVPN use case, right? So for for customers or or folks that have like a Cisco AnyConnect VPN, ASA termination or SD access, taking that environment and deploying it as secure access, there's a migration path for that. So we have that for, for customers we'll work with. We even um, right now in our in our closed early field trials and things, we're doing more white glove services with customers. But as that evolves to to the masses and as we get closer into uh, general availability towards the end of this year, it's going to essentially just be a, a model for anybody to consume. So, hey, I'm ready to migrate. Here's how I do it. Very cool. And it, it sounds fairly complicated. So it's good that you have some solid documentation, some architectures that people can use as a reference. Speaking of complicated things, I'm going to ask you about what can be a touchy subject, but I'll approach it cautiously. What does the licensing look like for this thing? Do I need uh, an MBA and, and three mathematics degrees, or is it is it relatively simple and straightforward? 
I'm glad you brought it up, Ned. It's just a great point, right? We talked about how important end user experience is. The purchasing experience is just as just as important. I'm not buying something that requires that advanced degree. It's just not worth it for me, right? Um, what we've done is we understand there's a lot of technical capabilities, but the buying model is extremely simplified in the form that, you know, those two use cases that we talked about before, those are the, the, the underpinnings. What do I, as a customer, want to achieve? Secure internet access, secure private access, or both, the full secure access stack? Based on your answer to that question, you decide which product or line item, however you want to reference it, you buy. Private access, internet access, or secure access as a whole. And it's based on how many folks you will be connecting in. So you have 20,000 employees, you buy 20,000 licenses for secure access. And that's really all you have to think about. There is one specific nuance in terms of advanced inspection capabilities. So if you decided that you wanted to do a little bit more uh, inspection, things like malware detection and cloud sandboxing and stuff like that, you can add those on as you desire. But the core functionality that we've talked about today, it's available across anything. You can buy whatever level you want and you will get ZTNA, you will get remote access, you will get internet access. You will get everything. So it's not like you're piecemealing a bunch of things together trying to find a, a single SKU. And for customers that perhaps are transacting in the EA model and things like that, it's also a part of that model as well. So trying to make it as easy as possible. Well, Neil, let's zoom out a little bit, look at the wider Cisco ecosystem and kind of ask some uh, some closing questions here. One is we've talked a lot about what Cisco Secure Access does, the SSE capability and so on, but you've definitely got customers out there that have invested in some of the SASE offerings that uh, Cisco and other BUs and Meraki might be offering. So does this offering, Cisco Secure Access, does it replace those offerings? Does it augment them? How does it fit in? I like to think about it, um, and a lot of folks here at Cisco, probably, if you've spoken to them, you've heard this. It's uh, the Russian nesting dolls, right? Um, there, there's a big one, a smaller one inside, another smaller one inside of it. So, from the perspective of initial Cisco investment in in Cisco Meraki or Viptela or Cisco Secure Connect SASE offering, right? If we think about SASE as a solution or an offering, it's truly bridging networking and security. And so, what the SASE offering with Cisco Plus Secure Connect is is the entire operability stack of Meraki and Cisco SD-WAN plugged into the security data path of secure access, right? So again, it's that evolution. So right now, the way um, the Cisco uh, Secure Connect SASE offering is built, um, it'll evolve to encompass Cisco Secure Access, everything that we talked about today. So at the end of the day, what that means for you is you have a single point of all of my SD-WAN infrastructure, and then you have a single point of the actual security plane that it's traversing, and the policy enforcement plane, and the posture plane, and the security plane. And you can see how the two interact. You can do it all from one dashboard. It's the long-winded, single-vendor, unified SASE. But for the moment, we're talking roadmap, right? That's not All that integration hasn't happened at this point yet. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it's a, it's an evolution. So that's coming um, as we as we kind of solidify and get the get the solution completely together. So um, when we bring those two together in the roadmap, that'll be the point at which you have that single vendor unified platform. You also mentioned along the way digital experience monitoring. How are you doing that today? What does that look like in the future? So today, I mentioned a few of the things that we have and the the introductory capabilities, things like giving that end user some a, a little bit of help, you know, giving them some experience, giving an overview for an admin, 
from a platform perspective, Cisco also has technology from Thousand Eyes. Um, the the breadth of digital monitoring they do just on a network scale and on a private enterprise scale where you can deploy nodes and agents and monitors all over your infrastructure, folding that into the secure access stack. Because fundamentally, it's exactly what you want to do, right? If your data path is now secure access, you want to have the same kind of monitoring you expected to have when you had all your private data centers and branches and this, that. The important thing is, as we talk about all of these integrations and tie-ins, we're not talking about cross-launches. We're not talking about buying two licenses and switching between dashboards. Every time we talk about one of these integrations, I just want to drive home, this is something that we're working really hard on, is we're folding it into secure access. So you're still in the same product. You're pivoting from the same dashboard into a different page on the same dashboard. You're buying everything as Cisco Secure Access. You're not doing this piecemeal situation. It's not just a integration. It's a it's a solution capability now. Well, to speak to that simplification point that you're driving home, man, when I was doing my homework for this show, Neil, and I go up to the Cisco security pages and start digging around, there is a lot of Cisco security products. So is Cisco's intent, is this kind of like the tip of the spear where there's going to be a lot more simplification of that security product line? Hundred percent. So this is, you know, this was the start. Um, as we move forward, we're we're working to bring products together in a more meaningful way, right? Like right now, when you think about buying security, you think about transacting on a product space or a technology. The way we're moving is don't buy a technology, buy an outcome. I want to protect my users. I want to protect or support my incident responders and researchers and security intelligence people. Buy on the outcome and don't worry uh, about like, I need to buy product A, product B, product C, product D. So that's what we're doing to simplify, right? Not only unifying the platforms with Cisco Security Cloud and the likes of Cisco Secure Access and SASE, but making the, the journey to purchase it a lot less arduous and a lot less kind of, what do I need? more, I need an outcome. I need my users to be secure. Cisco will offer you a platform to make your users secure, right? Rather than I need multi-factor authentication because I need that for user security. I need remote access for user security. You have to convert your outcomes into products. No more. Buy it as as an outcome. I want to achieve X. This is what Cisco will give you, X. I see that perspective. Yeah. That'll be hard for some engineers to get their heads around that are very used to thinking in terms of acronyms, products, and packet flows and (laughs) these kind of things. But uh, but I understand where you're coming from. And that is a simplified way to look at figuring out what exactly it is you need. Well, what am I trying to get done? You know, when you come at it from that perspective, then it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Neil, if people want to find out more about Cisco Secure Access and SSE, do you have a landing page you drive them to? We have the Cisco Secure Access homepage. So Cisco Secure, go.cisco slash secure. And then right there in, I believe it's still, since we did do the launch, it's still the home lander. Uh, but on the on the navigation bar, you'll be able to click the secure access. We also have a lot of great content. I mean, if you didn't have enough of me today, um, you can check out the Cisco Live uh, recordings uh, and you can you can check out my 90-minute my session. It goes much further into the details and the technology with some some visuals and demos. So you can definitely check that out. All those resources open accessible, just uh, you know, browse around the, the Cisco Live content repository or the Cisco Secure homepage. Yeah, I appreciated um, going through one of your PowerPoints uh, in preparation for this show. A lot of the block diagrams that are there that will help if you were struggling during the packet walk section of this podcast, 
the diagrams that uh, Neil created for his Cisco Live presentations will bring it all home for you. It was really good stuff. Uh, thanks for that, Neil. And uh, and thanks to you that are out there listening. Virtual high fives for tuning in all the way to the end of this longer than average episode. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit Ned or I up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow. Ned, are we still on Twitter? I don't know, whatever. I know Twitter's on fire, but we're still there. And if, uh, if you're not on Twitter anymore, go to day2cloud.io. Fill out the request form there and let us know what you'd like to hear. Now, hey, maybe you're another vendor out there and you've got a way cool cloud product you'd like to share with our audience of IT professionals. Well, you too, like Cisco, can become a Day2Cloud sponsor. You're going to reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve. Maybe your product fixes their problem. We'll never know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. Find out more at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.